0: Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. How's it going? Oh, good. I'm good. That, I'm good.
1: I'm good. E-
0: ever open-ended question that actually means nothing other than I actually think you're a fun person.
1: I have yeah. work on my mind because I was in the middle of just, just, I was in the middle of at least three gin servers in a nets table. <laughs> how do you and normally they call that friday night but right now <laughs> it's work so take some of the fun out of it but three, i uh, three gin
0: servers how many gins did you order and where it takes and an three three and servers to table. bring you your gin.
1: three gen servers and an et's table
0: uh how many gins can you fit in an et's table anyway that's terrible <laughs> so that's like you just say and having programming on your mind, like that is the bane of my existence. I feel for every, every spouse, partner, significant other of any software developer, because I don't know very many of us that can just shut it off and put it away.
1: I know I have a hard time with it. I'm having a hard time with it literally right now, um, where I'm just thinking about what it was, what it is that I needed to have been fixing and working on. But it's all good, getting there. That's all right. We just need to keep talking about ridiculous
0: stuff, and and you'll move on. Mm-hmm. Maybe yes,
1: <laughs> or you'll solve it. And I, don't like, I don't know. I don't know. Cut it's, this recording. <laughs> sometimes I go in waves, right? Sometimes it's like oh, I just can't. The problem takes hold, and you can't let it go. Mm-hmm. And that's all you're thinking about. That's that's currently, I, currently where I'm at. Seriously, I think the best thing that ever happened
0: to probably, probably in my career and my marriage, it was also really hard was driving a hundred miles each way to work because I was able to just have that thinking time. Like I could leave a problem at work. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got home, I was, I had already thought through it so much that I didn't have to, I didn't have to like wind down to get away from it. I already had,
1: I don't know. Yeah. Me and I solved a lot of problems on the road. <laughs> I have to go take a walk a lot, like after work. Yeah, oh yeah. I'll, just, I'll look at Andrew and I'm like, my I am my brain is like that of a newborn baby currently. Like I'm squishy. <laughs> like I need to go I need to go wander around a little bit and just decompress from that. Come back to Earth. I think that I think of a fantastic description. Like I
0: know when my wife tries to talk to me after I've had like one of those sessions like that. I'll talk to her for twenty minutes mm-hmm. and barely know anything that i've been saying and everyone like sometimes she'll notice and she she goes you're programming aren't you <laughs> mm-hmm. yes, yes 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 i mm-hmm. am <laughs> i'm really sorry uh this is why i think that uh hourly wages for developers is ridiculous like telling your developers you have to be in the seat 40 hours a week cuz i promise you they're they're coding when they're not in their seat
1: yeah i mm-hmm. yes I tend to agree. Tend to All agree. Right, so, so Gin servers and nets tables. Yes,
0: we we've we've talked about this over and over. Right. Well, you've brought it up over and over. I don't know that we've actually had much of a discussion on it. On what? So Gin servers and nets
1: tables. Uh, Have we gotten on, on, to on almost a hundred? A hundred on episodes. Tables. We haven't talked about a fundamental key part of Elixir. It's probably because we spend too much time talking about what, what? our kids ate for breakfast. You mean? you mean, You mean gen servers yes and thats tables yeah, and it's, it's tables
0: all right so 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 fill me in fill me in on the magic uh, I've heard you multiple times bring up how ets tables is something that is is key and that we should be using them more uh and thinking about using them more so so fill me in on the magic of ets and and why where to use it, why to use it?
1: Okay. Yeah, sure. So Ed's tables feel like, uh, I don't know, it's it's so interesting. My read on the situation is Ed's tables are like, I, I don't know, I feel a little bit like maybe I reach for them too much. But a lot of the work I end up doing uh, relies on ETS tables uh, and the guarantees that they provide. And I feel like they are an under, I won't say they're underused, like we should be using them more. I think they are under, like, like they're not understood well by the greater community and by people who are just sort of arriving to Elixir. I feel like people don't realize what ETS tables do for you and what they don't and how to use them and when to use them. Um and yeah, so so we can certainly really talk about it. So, S-Tables are a, uh, we'll say a primitive provided by OTP, uh, really by the Beam, which I, I guess are somewhat the same thing. I don't know what we're calling it all these days. All the different terms <laughs> that, we're, that we're breaking down. Uh, well, they're proud of Erlang. Uh, let just call it Erlang at this point.
0: Well, I think I, I, Beam's a virtual machine. OTP is a set of uh, abstractions and, and things on top of yeah. I mean, some I of the, get prim- the
1: difference, the, but like the but no primitive one else functions it, like receive they're and provided send, with right? Erlang. That's the takeaway, right? They're provided fair, with fair, Erlang yeah. in, in as much as at this it, point, Gen servers are basically provided with Erlang. Like, I mean, I well, get that they're, that's, they're, that's not act, like that's not technically accurate, uh, but <laughs> it's basically accurate. They're the standard library. <laughs> yeah, they're part of the standard library. Yeah. Uh, any in any case. So one of the things that we love about Erlang and about the the runtime that we work in about the actor model and how it's implemented with this immutable data and these actors is that it eliminates an entire class of race conditions. Now, of course, you can have concurrency bugs in an Erlang system, you can have race conditions, you can deadlock in an Erlang system, that is all possible, you can make it happen. But there is an entire class of bugs that is just eliminated by the fact that you cannot share data. In order to share data, you copy it and you send it to someone else. There is no mutable data, except mm-hmm. that there are these escape hatches, because Erlang is a deeply pragmatic language, a deeply, deeply pragmatic language. It has escape hatches everywhere, because at the end of the day, you need to do real work. You, you got you you, to do real you work. If you can't munch data, you can't actually do anything, right? I wasn't around when ets tables were added to the language, but for me, the ways that I use them, they are an amazing escape hatch for when you need out of the idea that you can't share anything. Uh, in the sense that, are like, you talking about sharing between pro- multiple yeah, processes? Because if you're going across a okay. process boundary, the only way to get data from inside of a process is to send a message to it. That's the only way you can get access to data. You have to send a message. That message has to go into the mailbox. It has to be processed. It has to be returned. Uh, and it, and in all of that, it, that data now needs to be copied across the process boundary into your process, into the caller. Because everything's processes, right? Like all, like all the way any, down. If you're in an IEX <laughs> shell, you're in a process somewhere. You know, if you're in a web request, you're in a process somewhere. And if you want to get access to some sort of like shared data, for instance some stuff that ought to be shared across multiple uh, processes you gotta you, you have only a couple options and one of them is you call a gen server and you or you know you call an agent or you call into a process of some sort and that process that, that message is going in a mailbox it's going to get processed it's going to come back to you eventually and all that data is going to get copied and copying is expensive and uh, and that gen server becomes a bottleneck. And if you're only running one of them, for instance, you have this like single global process thing, which then ends up on a cluster somewhere, uh, and then you're really, really doing it poorly. So, and then you got problems. So, there's often times where you have, let's say, a shared set of data that is uh, maybe cached, like cached values, right? Mm-hmm. Or they are uh, largely immutable in the sense that they do not change over the course of time, right? You write them into there once and you don't have multiple writers and you do have multiple readers. Like everybody needs access to it. So for instance, uh, one a good example of this would be if uh, when I was at Bleacher Report, we needed to uh, turn off traffic to downstream systems occasionally, like because they were unhealthy mm-hmm. or they couldn't keep up or they were getting overloaded. And we would shut them off and we would need to return cached values that we had been caching the whole time all when we were making good requests we were putting in a cache somewhere and now we want to return those cache values because we want the user to see something if we had to call into a gin server to do that that gin server becomes a bottleneck especially if it is if everyone needs to call the same gin server right if everybody needs mm-hmm. to get to the mm-hmm. same process it becomes a bottleneck so how do you solve this problem well ets tables are a great way to solve that problem And the way an ETS table works is it is an Erlang term storage table. And it creates an in-memory table. Uh, They have different types that you can use. Uh, Mm -hmm. By default, it is a set, which basically just means that you have keys and values. And you can put keys and values into this table, and then you can read from it. And the really cool thing is that all of the reads... can happen concurrently. They do not bottleneck on a single process. There is no single process for an ETS table when you're trying to read data out of it. Now, you still do pay the cost of copying. You still have to copy the data out of the table into your process when you go and get it. And that can still be Mm -hmm. expensive, but you no longer have this central effectively mutex around who can get access to the data. And so if you have stuff that needs to be widely read, for instance... You can go in and everybody can read from that Ets table all at once, and it will handle that concurrency for you. And now you no longer have that bottleneck on it. And it massively speeds up uh, your independent lookups. So now no none of your processes are all like queuing up. They're all able to run. They're all able to be isolated from each other. And that becomes a really, really useful pattern for when you need to, when you're willing to to go outside of the rules of the game so, uh, so to speak. It, it's really useful when you want to kind of cheat or get out of the get out of the business of serializing all of your calls through a single process somewhere. It's really really useful for that. So can can ets, you know, I
0: know that you said you can concurrently read and you know, people like Amazon want you to think that you can have an infinite infinite amount of scalability, too. So what what are the
1: limits of, of ETS? Um, like, like, is there a point where it becomes a bottleneck? Sure. I mean, ETS, uh, for certain operations, um, isn't the fastest thing out there. ETS can do a lot. That, let's be clear. ETS, like I said, it has multiple types of tables that you can have um so you can have bags which have like which allow you to have multiple items inside of a single key and that sort of thing um and you can do ordering and um there's different performance characteristics for all these things you can also uh do what's called um read optimizing or write optimizing your ets tables and so you can actually mark an ets table that says hey i'm willing to sacrifice read performance because writing is way more important and i'm will or inverse of that i'm willing to sacrifice write performance because reads are much more uh, important. And so you can, there's a bunch of knobs you can tune. You can also do things like atomic counters. So you can say, I want you to atomically increment a counter and return me the value to it. Right. Um, And that way you can have multiple writers, all updating and incrementing counters on a nets table. And uh, that is like ordered uh, correctly. So, I performance
0: wise too. I was reading, I remember reading an article. It's probably been a year, year and a half mm-hmm. where um, somebody tested the performance of pulling things out of a map versus pulling out of ets and ets was faster. Oh yeah. Than yeah. The map a,
1: at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, given a certain amount of keys, right. Um, mm-hmm. With enough keys, ETS is, is, is definitely gonna be faster and it's way faster than trying to share that map right everywhere. Yeah. Uh, or going through, through a process somewhere to go get access oh, to the cause you,
0: Well, and you don't have to copy that map if you're sending stuff around again, right? Like mm-hmm. you, they can pull out what keys they need without you passing the whole map or pulling out the keys for them and passing them that portion. Right.
1: And you can do some other fancy stuff with Ets tables where you have, there's a whole query language. And it is a little, I will say it's a, the query language you need, you use for Ets is a, the match spec uh, stuff is a little bit opaque. You have to learn how it works for sure. But overall, it's not too bad. And it is just working with Erlang data. That feels really cool because you're just using Erlang data to go get access to the stuff that you want. Um, you're news- using your normal Elixir bits to go and get things and filter and select the different keys and values you want out of out of ads.
0: So uh, do you use the match specs directly or do yeah. you use like the EX to match? You don't?
1: No, okay. I... I- I, I'm real bare bones with all that stuff. I just use, I just either write the, the match specs directly, or I figure out what I actually need and then just write them into the function. Like I write, write this, the, the, the query into the function that I'm where I'm using it.
0: Yeah. I find the I find the match specs. They were, they were semi cryptic at first mm-hmm. when I was first looking at them. I'm like, what the heck is that? But they're not, they're not really that hard to read uh Mm-mm. after you after you understand this, what's going on but i i have found with uh, working with other people like i have i haven't used a lot of ets i'm sure that you've you've done a lot more with that's than i have but i did it for like storing sensor data and stuff like that that i needed kind of readily available but didn't need it to go to a database and um i needed it across a lot of places but i found that whenever people wanted to search the ex to match spec stuff was a lot simpler to, to get
1: my team on board with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's like a nice halfway point, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, all that stuff takes education, right. Uh, And all of the, and the ways in which you can use ETS takes education and, and it takes like a little bit of learning, you know, there's, there's definitely some uh, you got to kind of get used to. And definitely. And it's one of those things too. Once you discover it, People then overuse it in the same way that they've sort of overused Gen servers, with like by putting like their domain model or whatever they call it, their domain mm-hmm. objects, quote unquote, into like Gen servers. It's like we well, didn't want to do that either, for sure. So people can overuse Et's tables, uh, and there's definitely cost associated with, let's say, spinning up an Et's table, and you know that's not necessarily a fast operation, mm-hmm. uh, relatively speaking, right? Um, there's memory involved in that there used to be limits on how many tables you could have, but that's been, that's, that's not really the case anymore. Uh, and, and, you know, you also have to be careful of like, how many things do you allow to go in the S table? Because the S table is not bounded. Like you have to do that, right? Like you have to build, it's not, you know, they don't know how you're going to use these tables. So you do the bounding operations so you can blow your memory out yeah exactly yeah yeah if you so and you can in there other there are other options like you can put it in there compressed um and stuff like that uh so you 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 do get those benefits um but yeah i mean it's a super super useful tool um it was invaluable at bleacher report for a whole just a, a, a very wide range of problems like a very very wide range of problems. It was it was invaluable. Um a lot of it was caching. Um we relied really heavily on, you know, we relied really heavily on uh caching good requests that were high cardinality. So we could return mm-hmm. those like if, in case like one of the services started to go down. Uh, and we used it's it's the thing that is behind, I mean it's it's behind all the caching libraries that are out there. It's it's and that includes Mintat. Uh, which is my caching library, which is the one that we used at, at Bleacher Report, um, because it was just dead simple and like didn't have as many knobs to to, to turn as a lot of the others because we didn't need any of those features, and so it was just a lot, it was a lot more efficient for us just to use Mintad at Bleacher Report.
0: And at Bleacher Report, you were, I mean, just from knowing what Bleacher Report does, it seems like you were probably serving a lot more data than you were writing. So caching mm-hmm. becomes probably really,
1: really important. Yeah, and failover is important because we got to a point where we were mm. shed- we were shedding traffic constantly because that's the model. Like, so, so we ended up moving towards regulator. Uh, like I built regulator and regulator is uh, a way to do adaptive concurrency. And one of the tricks to adaptive concurrency is you need to basically be living on the razor's edge all the time. Like you need to be on the edge of acceptable all the time. And thus you are constantly finding the actual concurrency limit all the time. And by and, okay. and when you go over it, when regulator allows you to exceed that concurrency limit, you're going to start shedding traffic, which just means you're going to drop it instantly. You're not going to make the downstream call or you're not going to do whatever. And when that happens, you have choices to make. You can choose to return errors. Uh, You could Mm -hmm. choose to return an unhydrated payload, or you could choose to return some stale data. And so for our use case and our user experience, returning stale data was totally acceptable. And so better than nothing. Exactly. And so we were always in this position of like, just about dropping traffic all the time. That's kind of where we wanted to live towards the end, Mm -hmm. towards the end of my tenure. I mean, obviously stuff may have changed, but that's kind of what I was tuning it towards uh, at the front door was just constantly like trying to get closer and closer to like, almost always dropping traffic just a little bit and then serving and finding ways to serve cache values and finding ways to keep those caches more alive uh keep those caches more hydrated and and being better about that. And a lot we used um regulator for that, which is or and and Mintat, which is basically just ets. I mean, in some cases, we just I wrote et's tables powered you know that got hydrated by Gen servers and did the whole normal thing that you you do right. You know, sometimes you just reach for and grab a Gen or uh, an et's table directly. You don't need a caching library for that. So when when you heard Pleacher report, I'm curious, did you um, just spend
0: like most of your time just working on getting a little more
1: performance out constantly, or in rarely new features, or towards the end of my time. Uh, that is predominantly what I was doing, what I what I was personally working on, partially because that was the job that I wanted and carved out for myself while I was there. Mm-hmm. partially because uh, I I had a, a some uh, some amount of experience doing having done that and knew had done a bunch of research into it and, and sort of new patterns that I wanted to use. So yeah, and also partially because I was like just sort of bullish enough to kind of push on it. Constantly, mm-hmm. so um, that's that's yeah. So that's mostly what I was doing towards the end. Was like not even performance, I would say, but just reliability, resiliency, like making sure that stuff stayed alive a lot longer. And so at the end, we had a whole a whole uh, suite of tools, uh, most of which are open sourced on my GitHub, that we ended up relying on. So we used a lot of uh, we used regulators basically everywhere. We had a we used Mintat in a lot of places, um, which I mean all these things started as like internal ideas, mm-hmm. and then either they got open sourced or I open sourced them ahead of time, and then we brought we brought them in to the, to the organization. Uh, trying to think what others oh we used um, for all of our our calls, all of our downstream calls. Uh, to other services we always included deadlines so at the front door when a when a web re- re- request came in we assigned it a deadline so how long it ought to take to fulfill it yep and then we propagated that through all the other calls and we had automatic tooling to be able to do that and propagate it across like process boundaries and all that sort of stuff so do you give it like a
0: like how how are you doing that because i know you're going across a lot of processes and you know sometimes you, i don't know how much you cared? Were you relying on a system clock and just saying, hey, this is the dead time, whenever it hits this time period, you throw it
1: out? Or were you like counting? We we used, so the way it worked internally is as soon as it came in, uh, you assigned a deadline to it based on the RPC you were trying to make or the web request you were, you know, whatever request you were trying to fulfill. And uh, the way it works is what's cool. So the way deadline propagation works is, you get, let's say you get some call and you're like, this should take no more than one second. Uh, In order to fulfill this call at the front door, I need to call the content API. I need to call their, you know, the social API and get back like comments and, and the number of likes this thing has. I need to call the user API to get usernames. I need to call this other thing to see if like any of these comments have been muted or like, you know, uh, like, I don't know, filtered in some way, right? I have to do all these things. And some of those can happen concurrently and some of them can happen serially. And some of them will trigger other downstream calls. Uh, not often at Bleach Report because we tried to like keep that, we, we tried to keep the hierarchy really flat yeah, yeah, in terms yeah. of our service calls, um, just via design. <clears throat> but like, sometimes you did. Sometimes it ended up being multiple other calls. So you assign that deadline of one second and then we had, I had, I say I, I mean, I did a lot of it. Other people also worked on it, obviously. But we had a bunch of different ways to support that. One was all of our HTTP client tooling supported retries and deadlines. And so what it would do is it sends it. Internally, what it's doing is it's tracking the timestamp, the system.monotonic time that you get when the process mm-hmm. comes in. When you assign the deadline, you say, okay, well, so this is going to take one second. So it takes, it goes, okay, well, that is... System monotonic time right now plus 1,000 milliseconds or whatever, and then mm-hmm. like holds on to that and it stores it in process dictionary, and then we had our own wrappers around like tasks and gen server calls that automatically propagated that deadline into the next call. So tasks are really easy. You just like wrap the task module and then it, like shove that new deadline into the into the um, into the task whenever you whenever you start the task. And then what that would do is once it gets to the HTTP client, it took the deadline and took the Delta, like how much time was left in, Mm -hmm. in finite fixed time and put it in a header. (laughs) And then it propagated like how much time they had left via the Delta to the next service. And so
0: services make decisions on that time to like say, Hey, just render out of the cache.
1: Uh, yeah. So for instance, they could totally do that. The other big thing that deadline would do is you can say, hey, um, terminate, my, terminate me if I exceed my deadline. And so all of the Phoenix processes, like we had a plug that the one of the first things it did is it said, hey, uh, here's the deadline that I got from the header. Terminate me if I exceed that. The idea being, if I'm at the front door and I have a deadline of one second, And the downstream call takes two seconds. Mm -hmm. There is no reason for the downstream service to keep working if the deadline has been exceeded. Right. If the upstream thing has given up, for instance, the upstream thing, let's say you have a call that you're making to a downstream service and you set the timeout in Hackney to 50 milliseconds. Well, what we would do is we detect that and we take the min of either your actual deadline, how much time you have left, and how much time you've specified. Right. So if you've got 30 milliseconds left based on the deadline that you set, but you specified 50, we would send 30.
0: Okay. Just like, like a, like a manager, right? Yeah, exactly. You have, you have six months to do that. Hey, you guys have three months to do that. Hey, hey, developer, I need this next week.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and so we would send, we would propagate the deadline, the, either the real one that they had set or the actual minimum that was left. And we would say, Hey, you have, 20 20 milliseconds to finish this 30 milliseconds to finish this 50 milliseconds to finish it and if at any point it started to exceed that because like redis was taking too long or ecto took too long or just got bottlenecked on something or whatever we just killed it because if hackney's going to give up up here at the at, at, at your front door why bot? why should the downstream yeah, service cares. bother working wasting cpu trying to fulfill a, a request that it literally can't it can't fulfill anyway
0: so did your plug just create a task and kick off a task with a, a timeout? Or no, like how, uh- it.
1: Um, the way it worked is we had a pool of gen servers and it picked one at random and then said monitor me, and then that thing set timers and then would 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 like kill processes for you. But just off the process ID, yeah, yeah, it would just say monitor oh, yeah. it and then do it well, that's that's smart. that's way better than what I was thinking. <laughs> so we had that set up set up. I mean, we just had a bunch of tooling like that, right? We had a bunch of stuff that helped keep all the services kind of alive and um it was it was it was really useful, and it was all tied into our like it was all tied into our monitoring tooling, which we had built out, so you just automatically got trace propagations, and you could see what the deadlines were when you called like that thing and why it got ended. And we had specific status codes that we used for when a deadline was exceeded and that sort of stuff. Like we, we just spent a lot of time building all that out. It's nice though. Like, really. yeah, once you have it all, it's really nice. Like, it's just like, Oh, this is, this is great. You know, like I have all this stuff now. And I think a a really important observation was we spent some time to do it, but it wasn't like, it wasn't, a, a massive time expenditure. Mm-hmm. We just took the time to do it because it was important to us. And then because it was because we had not relegated it to some sort of ops yaml configuration, we actually were able to build much more useful like solutions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like there's a lot of people who really are really into like the Istio thing, right? And one of my main problems with like Istio is not Istio necessarily. It's that, and not the fact that you're going through yet another fake network and not the fact (laughs) that it violates the end to end principle and not the fact, you know, it's like not the 20 extra milliseconds of time that you'll spend waiting on your Istio to do work. And 20 milliseconds is an eternity when you're trying to serve a request. That's what I'm seeing currently. I don't know if that's universal, but that's Uh. what I'm seeing at the moment. Uh, But anyway, it's like, you could delegate Istio to be your circuit breaker, which I mean yeah, good luck with that IstiO circuit breakers are terrible, but like <laughs> you could you could do that right, but you're going to be building like by by removing it's the end to end principle thing by removing your by by moving that into middleware into something in the network right and not the end, you're providing a, like markedly worse experience for your user. And if you take control of this stuff, guess what? You can now build a much, much, much better experience for your end user because you control it all and you can be the arbiter of like what you're going to return, how you're going to cache values, how you're going to like service stuff, how you're going to propagate changes across the cluster, how you're going to fail over to certain certain things like you the programmer get to be in charge of that and you are much closer to the end user than your istio network layer that is in between all your services and like some ops person who's trying to generically modify all this stuff it's like that's not that's not tenable if what you want to do is deliver the best user experience that you can yeah yeah um
0: i wanted to piggyback on that cuz i can't agree with you more but i don't i don't think there's anything to add to it like Just like building the software that your end users need takes a lot more control. This is this is a part of the reason that I I think like all the serverless stuff is just like BS. But maybe I don't know enough about it, or maybe I'm I'm exactly on board. But a lot of that stuff feels like exactly like Istio, the where you're you're trying to give all that control off to somebody else. But if you want to build a real user experience, you can't.
1: Well, and Istio is what you do when you have literally unbounded complexity. You know, I mean, Istio is the thing that you have to start to reach for when you have so many services calling each other with so many junior people that you can't manage them all. And they can't be bothered to build all this stuff to support all the things that you need. And like that is that's what you end up with. Right. Istio is Mm -hmm. like the last bastion. It's the, like the last thing that you that you should ever reach for if what you want to do is is build like a system that I mean, I don't know. It's it's you're solving such you're solving a symptom of a much larger problem at that point. And I'm not saying it's not useful for somebody, but it's useful for somebody in the situation where there is no other alternative. Like it's, it's not where it's not tenable to build a bunch of services that are actually reliable and actually resilient, like, because it's just you too know. much effort and not worth yeah. it. Or it's this, or you're in a situation where no one has bothered to do that. And now has built such a mess that the only way out of it is just to like, get the network involved.
0: Well, I, I, well, and you get that time talent people problem, right? So, um, that's where. I think I I see a lot of developers who would love to solve those really hard problems, but the business maybe doesn't have the time for the developers to sit back and figure it out. So I can see that it gets it's easy to get into a place like that. Although, you know, now today you don't, you don't have to do any performance You just install a TP24 in the jit and you're, yeah, you're fine, right? Exactly. I, I mean, I have I have If you can I get have, it installed. I, I haven't qu- managed to get it installed yet. I haven't managed to get it installed either, but <laughs> but I, I have I have a quote of the day. You ready for this? Yes. Friend of the show BR engineer Jason Stewart. Okay. Jason, we love you, but I'm going to quote you even though you told me not to. Uh jit and elixir is what he was talking about and he said faster than C just saying saying. that's that's what he said okay there you go (laughs) he so he wrote a ray tracer in elixir it's pretty awesome you should check it out if you haven't seen it um he he uh also wrote a ray tracer in C and originally the ray tracer in one of the tests that he had in um in elixir took here I'm gonna I'm I don't want to Lie about it. So I'm going to do this cool radio thing where I go dig while we're on air and -hmm. look for this. Mm -hmm. So he took, this is an eight core machine. In OTP 23, it took 212 seconds to render. In OTP 24, it took 144 seconds to render. And so it's eight cores, and the C that he had is only going to, it only uses a single core. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and he could go write it threaded, but that's a lot of work in C. So it's running faster than the C. Cool. That's so fun. so now faster than C is the quote. There you go. That's the <laughs> takeaway. That's, 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 that's the takeaway. Take 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 um, but yeah, I have not been able to get it to compile. I on, haven't gotten it working uh, yet. I, haven't, I also haven't really tried that hard, but I haven't gotten it working yet. I, I tried to compile two different times and then... Went Online and started looking and found a giant thing. It's all about the crypto compiling stuff. it on OSX, yeah.
1: It's all the crypto stuff, it's different now. And uh, yeah, I just haven't. I, I tried it, I, I ran ASDF install Erlang 24.0 and that didn't work. And then I walked away. And i was uh, like, well, wow, I'll w- look at this later.
0: <laughs> I, I blew away all my OpenSSL and reinstalled all of it and then tried, yeah, and it didn't work, yeah, whatever. No, I don't know, I'll no. get to it later. So, in
1: the meantime, um, yeah, I anyway, thought so I'd try the takeaway here. The real takeaway here is Ets is really cool and you can do a lot of stuff with it. Caching is a really obvious one. If you want to see an example of like kind of how it's used, you can go look at the Mintat, which is that caching library that I worked on. But I would also say like we do the same thing. Regulator makes very heavy use of Ets tables, much more heavy use of Ets tables, actually. Like there are many, many Ets tables inside of every regulator. Hmm. Every regulator, I think you get... um, I mean, you're, well, I, the number is indeterminate, but you're going to get at least as many schedulers as you have plus one number of ETS tables per regulator.
0: So do you, do you think that regulators are a good project to go look at if you want to see how ETS tables are being used? Or... Sure,
1: yeah, you could totally go look at that. And actually, there's some optimizations that could be made in there with Atomics these days. I didn't add it at first because we were running um, an, old, an old enough version of Erlang on some services that they didn't have Atomics. Mm. But uh yeah, adding atomics and and would also be good. But yes, it's I would say there's a it's um it's pretty useful if you want to see about like a very different way to use uh ETS tables. In this case, we actually use them in a write optimized way. And we we the reason you get so many ets tables is because the goal of regulator is to add as little overhead to the calling process as possible. Mm-hmm. And so what we end up doing is when each process keeps track of its own latency, like how long it takes to to issue its calls and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. and then it writes those values into an ETS table. And when it writes the value into the ETS table, it actually looks up what scheduler it's on and then picks the ETS table that corresponds to that scheduler based on a name and writes it into a specific ETS table. And doing it that way means that there is even less write contention on any individual table in over, over in aggregate. So there's only there should in theory this doesn't work out in practice, but in theory you should only like there should only be uh, one person writing to an et's table at any given time. There should only be one process writing to an et's table at any given time, which which massively speeds up writes over. And then the way we gather up the data is we just do map reduce. Take oh, nice. all the tables and we map reduce over them. So that's another use case of Et's tables, where like you're taking a ton of, uh, you're doing a, all this complex stuff behind the scenes, all in the service of like I need to send, I need to collect. Uh, <laughs> I have 10,000 requests a second, and I need to collect the their like the durations of every single one of those requests. I need them all to write all of their values somewhere so that I can process them. And determine what the average is. Like that's the total of what you're trying to do mm-hmm. for in regulator, basically. And uh, yeah, like that would not be possible to do calling a single gen server. Or, or even a single Ets table, right? Like you Which would add is- so much overhead to it, right? <laughs> and if you're gonna go if you're gonna go to the trouble of trying to make this really efficient, you might as well make it really efficient. It is writing to an ets table
0: going through a gen server?
1: no, or is, no. Like, is it straight C or it's yeah I mean all those are built-in functions right and so they're they're going uh it's doing its own locking and stuff though to try to ensure that um, rights to the ETS table uh are ordered based on some guarantees okay and so it has it does have to do some amount of locking to do that it's just that it's way faster than you know your especially too, if you're reading from it at the same time, right? It's, it's trying to give you a uh, ordered view of the world. Like it's trying to provide those sorts of guarantees, um, at least within some, some loose, some bounds Yeah. Yeah. And so it's trying to do that. And so if you can remove contention from the tables, then that is very, very useful. Um, for speeding up for, for optimizing all of your other processes. Very cool. So I, w- I want to get this picture, right? So you have,
0: you have one table that keeps track of which scheduler something is on. And then that tells it what other table to write to.
1: Uh No, you, we have a table that stores the actual concurrency limits Okay. And, and then we have, a, so that ever, and that's read optimized. Okay. um, And then we have a bunch of what we call the, a buffer, which is all of the statistics that it's collecting. And that is uh, it's, it's in number of et tables where in is the number of schedulers. Okay. In the, in, in Erlang. And so we write all of the statistics into those and we just name them like, you know, uh, the atom is like your regulator name dash scheduler ID. Okay. And then so what happens is it's just a name. It's just a, it's just a unique name that we give to the regulator. Right. And then uh, when you want to write into it, you say, you know, whatever the call is, it's like Erlang dot system info scheduler ID mm-hmm. or something like that. Like so I don't remember the the name of the okay. function, but you get the scheduler ID and then that becomes the table, the part of the table name that you are going to then write into.
0: So when when you read from those, though, you're reading across all of them because like mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. that comes along and tries to read might be on a different scheduler at that point. So they can't just read from the scheduler ID. Right.
1: Right. right. So they, right. Re- exactly. they read
0: across all of them. That's where your map Yeah. Produce. So it reads okay.
1: across all of them all at once. Uh, well, it, it can do it, but it can do it in a MapReduce fashion. So it can read right. them all in parallel and then gather them all up to do the reduced step. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. So that's how it ends up working out. And, uh, and, and it's pretty speedy. It's pretty nice. So it it, it it has worked fairly well. But like I say, there's so many different use cases for ETS. Um, I think it really is kind of a superpower once you figure it out and and learn kind of what it can do and use it appropriately. Right. Like you can definitely overuse it. You know, like we've talked about this before. Data is key to your application. You know, don't overuse it. And, and also like Don't use it to the degree that you're going to reintroduce all the gross, like mutability, like, you know, mutable state bugs that you global, like mutable global state bugs that you try that we walked away from by doing Elixir in the first place. Right. Like, don't go back to that life. Most of the time, you can probably get away with using protected tables, which are like, you have a gen server somewhere that starts the table, that gen server can write into the table, but then anybody can read from the table. Mm-hmm. And that's like that's like a really good stock pattern, and you should do that. So like you don't call the gin server to read, just read directly from the table in the calling process. But if that gin server that started that table dies, that table's gone. And then, and, and then you important. have to understand that, yeah. if, that if that gen server dies, that table's gone, unless you do the whole song and dance of like inheriting the table, like saying, marking a different process as the actual owner. And then yeah. there's ways to keep those tables alive for I've, sure. I've
0: seen a, a lot
1: of places where they'll put the table on the
0: supervisor itself. Mm-hmm.
1: That's generally what I end up doing. Um, that's not the really the best way to do it if we're being honest, Mm -hmm. but that is often what I do. That's what I do probably like 90 something percent of the time is if, if multiple people need to be able to write to it and read from it. And I am worried about uh, if, if I want that data persisted, after a crash of a gen server somewhere, I don't want that. That data needs to live longer than the gen server needs to, that c- could possibly live. Mm-hmm. If the life sp- uh, cycles of those are different, then I will almost always just put it on the scheduler or uh, scheduler, on the supervisor and mark the table as public and then write to it from the gen server and read from it from everywhere else and just not worry about it. That's typically what I will do um, because... The, the, the reason being when you start an Ets table, whoever starts whatever process starts it becomes its quote unquote owner and if that owner dies, the ets table is garbage collected. Right. right So if you if you start an Ets table in a gen server and the gen server crashes for whatever reason, all the data in the Ets table is now gone. Sometimes that's on purpose. Sometimes you want that because you're like, I you know you're, you're storing stuff that is attached to that gen server's life cycle. But sometimes mm-hmm. you want it to persist beyond crashes. And so you can either do... Uh, the S-tables have a notion of being able to have a successor, right? You can mm-hmm. mark a different process as, okay, well, this ought to be the owner now. And if I die, it goes back to this one. And you can kind of... You can fiddle with that. And that's really the best way to do it if you want... If you want to maximize uh, both the safety of the table and also m- meaning like who can write to it and who can read from it, if you want that, that allows you to still use protected tables. So, so then it, it swaps owners auto magically. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you set Basically that up. if the, if the table dies, it jumps back over to this one, then you've got to bring up the new one. It's got to ask for the table. It's got to get the table again and blah, blah, blah. It's got to do a whole thing. Right. Um, it is just a lot, a lot easier to start the tables inside the supervisor. And obviously, at that point, if the supervisor dies, then obviously the tables. Yeah, you're going in late. the same place. But most of the time, if it's if the supervisor dies, if you construct your if you construct your supervision tree well, if the super if the supervisor dies, I mean, you're like that probably indicates that you're you're cool with resetting all that data. Right, because it could be that data that's
0: causing you your issue. Right, like maybe it maybe you have changed something in it in a bad way. So that's cool. I've got to get out of here and get back yeah, to some too. other stuff and I know that you were deep into programming. I hope I got you uh onto something else for a little bit, led your brain to do some uh I'm just thinking about that stables now. Diffuse mode thinking. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, uh um, cool? Maybe enjoy some lunch, go on a walk and uh I'll see you next time.
1: Later.